Well, good morning, Chapel family. What a joy to be together in the Lord's house. And I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of John and chapter 13. And as you get your Bibles out and turn there, let me take us to the throne of grace before we study the Word. Well, Father God, we are grateful. We are grateful for your great love for us, which enables us to come before you, the holy God, as we have sung this morning. We are grateful for your care for us. We are grateful most especially for our Lord Jesus. In these moments as we will come and open the word and step back into time, into that last night before Jesus was crucified. This is a rich text, and I pray that it will bless us, that it will challenge us, that you will use it to transform us. We pray that your word would be clear, that the Spirit would use it to do a work in us. To that end, we simply come and express our need to you and ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. As well, greeting those of you who are watching online. There's always uh, some every week. What a, one of those blessings that came out of COVID. There weren't many, but one of those was uh, beginning this whole ministry of streaming, which... Uh, there's a significant number of folks every week who end up uh, watching via stream, and uh, we're grateful for that. Well, John chapter 13, we began last week a new series of studies called Eight Hours. What a valuable, valuable study I think you will find this to be. This study will cover John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 these chapters which cover the period of time in the last hours that Jesus spent with His disciples before He was arrested. In last week's Scripture at the beginning of John 13, Jesus and the disciples gathered in the upper room on Thursday evening just as the sun was setting and as in Jewish thinking a new day began. It was now Passover and Jesus and the disciples began to celebrate the Passover together. And we saw a very familiar and yet shocking passage as Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. As we picture the scene before us, and it helps us to get a little picture of what, what it might have been like in those days. That's not a bad picture of what the room may have been. But as we picture the scene, we have to kind of erase from our minds the picture that is so often put out there of the Last Supper, uh, so much of it based on Leonardo da Vinci's uh, famous work, The Last Supper, which has some glaring flaws. For one thing, first of all, they, just, they didn't sit all on the same side of a long table. Nobody does that today and nobody did that then. Unless, you know, you're gathering for a group photo 
Or you're at a banquet, a wedding reception, and the head table is on display. There you might have folks lined up. But when you're gathered with, with family or a group of friends, you don't line up on one side of a table. You go around the table where you can see one another. So that's an obvious flaw. Another obvious flaw is that they are sitting in chairs. They didn't sit in chairs or in benches. For certain meals in that day and in that culture, they would recline at a table. And especially at the Passover meal, the Jews of this time would would come to a very low table, perhaps just a few inches to maybe a foot or so off the floor. And instead of sitting in chairs, diners would lay on very low little couches or on cushions or pillows. And they would lay on their left side to eat. It might have been a scene kind of like that. They're more sitting actually than laying. Uh, this gets more the laying concept. But the table would probably be, as in the earlier pictures, a U-shaped rather than a square or rectangle. And they would have their heads near the table as they lay on their left side where, uh, with their feet going out away from the table and their hand, uh, they would eat with their right hand then on the table. I was able to find an actual photograph. It's quite old and it probably is maybe the original scene. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just in case somebody thinks I'm serious. I, I'm not. The reason they recline is because free people, you see, can eat dinner relaxed. You can, as you, if you're free, you have the time and the, and the, you know, the ability to just eat dinner laying down, very relaxed. And since the celebration of Passover was all about freedom, it's all about remembering their deliverance from bondage in Egypt, from slavery, and gather, getting their freedom as the people of God, as the Israelites. Passover was a meal that was, was eaten laying down. At this dinner, Jesus was most likely then at the center of that U, if it was a U-shaped table. Uh, he was there because as the rabbi, he was the leader of the of the dinner and they would sit there in the the central place. We also discover as we'll go on we'll find that the apostle John is is laying down to the right of Jesus and to the left of Jesus or behind him if you're laying on your left side is uh Judas. John on the right, Judas on the left. And the other disciples Scattered around the table, we don't really know what order. Probably Peter is down at the far end. Uh, I think his brother Larry Dyer used to say that uh, Peter, for once in his life, said I, he got the point when Jesus said the last will be first and the first will be last, and he went and got to the last, expecting maybe a promotion, and it didn't, didn't come. But regardless, that's speculation. But last week... As this celebration of Passover began, it, it begins with the first cup, a cup that is blessed and then partaken of, a cup of wine. And then 
before the real normal progression of the service went on, it took a rather abrupt detour, which we noticed last week, an unexpected detour. When Jesus, as the leader, would often wash his hands while the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest in the, going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who's the best and biggest and, uh, uh, disciple, Jesus, you know, gets up and, and starts to wash feet. We discussed that last week. Now, Jesus back at the table, He began to say, as we saw again last week, he began to say, do you understand what I've done for you? I have set an example for you to follow. As I have served you, so you are to serve one another. And now we'll pick up the account in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. The Passover was one of the great feasts in Israel. And the meal is finally about to start. There have been... The portion of the service has gone on, but now it's time that actual the, the dinner is about to begin. And Jesus drops a bomb right into the middle of their Passover party, if I might say it that way. Think your family, your friends, you've gathered, you're having Thanksgiving dinner, you're having Christmas dinner, you're having Easter dinner. And right as the first food is about to be served, Somebody drops some big nugget of problem in the group. You know, something about some horrible health situation regarding somebody there or a family crisis or, a, you know, some big crisis thing that just ruins everybody's appetite and just kind of puts a big on the meal. That's kind of what happens here. This is a big meal and they, just as it's about to start, Jesus says, One who ate bread with me lifts up his heel against me. And then later, one of you will betray me. The disciples look at each other incredulous, speechless, uncertain of whom he's talking about, uncertain what, who is this, what's going to happen, and they're, and they're just, wow, what do you do? They start asking one one excuse me one after another. Mark records, "Well, Lord, is it I? Is it I?" And then Matthew writes, "Judas would be would betray him." Answered, "Is it I, Rabbi?" And Jesus, apparently very softly, just turns because he's right there and says, 
You've said it. Judas has been playing the hypocrite all along, playing the part, still playing the game right now. He's still figuring out that Jesus knows everything. He'll know that before long. Jesus here in these moments, as the dinner is about to begin, Jesus predicts his betrayal. Why would anybody ruin a holiday meal with a sobering, disconcerting, shocking, disturbing announcement? Well, we know Jesus does this because in a matter of hours, it will be true. It will happen. The disciples don't know that, though. Not yet. But Jesus explains why. Book of verse 19. Here's the reason why he tells them. He says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. This and actually everything in these hours here, these eight hours that have now been dwindling down maybe to seven hours at this point or even less. In these hours, Jesus is telling them things they need to hear. Things they are desperately going to need to know. Things they are going to need to hear as Jesus is arrested Tried, crucified. Jesus' betrayal and his, his crucifixion, his death are going to be a traumatic experience for these followers. We can imagine. For any of us, if we saw someone we knew, much less someone we really cared about, someone we were very close to, if we saw them get arrested, if we saw them be, be beaten, if we saw them be tried, if we saw them be crucified, would you be traumatized? I think we would. Jesus knows this is coming, and so these, these hours He is spending stealing them, preparing them for what they can't be prepared for fully. But He's preparing them so that afterwards they will know some things. He says, these things I have told you so that after it takes place, you may know some things. What, what does he want them to know? After they take place, they can look back. First of all, he says, and know that I am he. I am he who? <laughs> and the answer is, I am who I've claimed to be. That he is the one who has come from the Father. That he is one, as he will say later, to know me is to know the Father. He is God incarnate, Son of Man, Son of God. Jesus is telling them these things so that they might know that He is God. He said, I'm telling you everything that's going to happen ahead of time because no human can tell you all the things that are going to happen ahead of time. When you see after the fact you, what happens, you will know, I am He. Jesus says, verse 18, I know whom I have chosen. Why does he say that? 
Because what he's saying is, I've just announced that there's a betrayer among us. There is one who is going to betray me. And these, these men have followed Jesus because they have come to believe that Jesus is Messiah. He is the anointed, the promised one of God that all the prophets spoke of. They have come to believe that He is the Son of Man, that He is the Son of God, that He is Emmanuel, God with us. But all of that belief is going to be put to the test in these next hours as Jesus is crucified. Wait, the Messiah is supposed to live forever. (laughs) And how can God die? So Jesus wants them to know The betrayer, it's not an accident. I know whom I have chosen. He's not talking about in terms of salvation. He's talking about who he has chosen as his disciples. I know every one of you. This is not a surprise that there's a betrayer. He was chosen from the beginning. I know that because Jesus back in John chapter 6, verse 70, takes us back about a year, probably two years earlier, when Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus knew from the moment he chose them. The Gospels say he knew who would betray. Why would Jesus choose a disciple who would betray him? Because there's a purpose. There's a plan. It's not a mistake. Jesus is saying, I knew this. Only God can know that. Another thing he wants them to know, not only is that Jesus is God, but that the betrayal, again, is not an accident. It's not an afterthought. It is not something where God goes, oops, I didn't see that one coming. Not even Jesus is surprised by this. Jesus has known all along and he has said several times through the gospel already as you, as we go through, we see that Jesus has said, I'm going to be delivered up and crucified. I'm going to die. The disciples had missed comprehending what he's saying. But his betrayal was prophesied that we could go back and find a number of different prophecies of this in the Old Testament. But Jesus quotes one for us here in the text. To get their attention, he sends him back to Psalm 41 and verse 9, where it says there in the psalm, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. He just quotes the last part of that verse, I think assuming they know the rest. My close friend has betrayed me. It was prophesied because God is working a plan. Judas may think that he is disrupting Jesus' plan. Satan may think that he is interfering with God's plan. But both of them are making God's plan happen. Exactly as God has planned, exactly on time. God is working a plan and it cannot be thwarted by Judas or by anyone else. A third thing he wants them to know is that Not only is Jesus God, not only is the betrayal prophesied, it's not an accident, the gospel is not defeated. There might be a tendency for them, much as there is perhaps for us, 
working in ministry. They had been in ministry with Jesus for three years. Now all of a sudden they discover that one of them is a betrayer. And this betrayer is going to have Jesus betrayed and crucified. And they might be wondering, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> did, did having a betrayer, a fake believer among us, invalidate our ministry? Did it destroy God's work? Did it nullify or stop God's purpose here? Some of you have been in places in ministry where they're a pretender, a hypocrite, a someone defects from the faith. You might wonder, is God still in control? <laughs> is there a problem with the gospel? Is there a problem with, you know, whatever? And Jesus is saying no. The answer is no. Judas was right there with the disciples, when they went out preaching the gospel, when they went out healing the sick, casting out demons, Judas was there. But is the gospel still valid? Is the message still still right? The answer is, the message is still valid. It is still right. Jesus put it this way in verse 20, and that's where we get this. Whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That is, the Father. You see, the power of the gospel is not in the human messenger. The power of the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel is the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ on the cross paid the penalty for our sin. The only acceptable sacrifice could be the blood of a sinless man. And the only sacrifice that could be sufficient for all men is the blood of the infinite God-man. This was God's plan. And the fact that a human messenger has been a pretender and has infiltrated the ranks does not destroy the reality and the truth of the gospel. Let me put it this way. If tomorrow you go out to your mailbox, you open up the mailbox, you pull out, and there's this very official letter, and you see it says it's a certified letter. I guess you had to sign for that, didn't you? So you okay, the guy brought it to your door, all right? You sign for it, you take it, and uh, and it's from the St. Charles County Court. You open it up, and there it says, your Uncle Fred, you didn't even know you had an Uncle Fred, but your Uncle Fred died, and he left you $25 million. Uncle Fred, I wish I knew you. I feel bad that I don't. But this is good news, is it not? Now, if on Tuesday you watch the news and you discover that your mail person who delivered you that letter, was arrested because they are a no-good, dirty, rotten, cattle-rustling, male-thieving, snake-in-the-grass, yellow-bellied, uh, whatever other Texas insults I can level. His arrest does not invalidate the message that he delivered. The authority and the value of that message came from the court, 
that had the authority to deliver that in, you know, from the county court. The male person who delivered it really had very little to do with that. I mean, I say in a very poor example, that's how it is here. If an unbelieving, two-faced hypocrite gets up here and shares the gospel of Jesus Christ, again, go down through John 3.16, as I did a moment ago, God so loved the world, He gave His one only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. If they explain how you're a sinner and you need a Savior, that's why God sent Jesus. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not about being good. It's not about about doing good. Salvation is not by works. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. An unbelieving person can stand up here and say those things and if somebody out there is not a believer in Christ, they hear that and they say, I get that. I, I believe that. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Are they saved? Yes. Because the power of the gospel is not in the human messenger. The power of the gospel is in the message. And the Savior who is behind the message, upon whom the message is based, who it came through, that is Jesus Christ. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. Whoever receives me, the truth of the gospel, whoever receives the one I sent, I should say, whoever receives the one I sent, the message that... They received me then because they received the truth of the message. And then they received the one who sent me, who is the Father. The important thing is the truth of the message and the one who receives it putting their faith in Jesus. Judas did not destroy the gospel. The gospel, any people that they brought to Jesus still are with Jesus. And the message of the gospel still counts for these disciples as they go forward. Back to our story for text for more of the story here. One of his disciples, one of Jesus' disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to, to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. The disciples are still incredulous trying to figure out who is this betrayer. One of his disciples, that's John referring to himself as he writes, One of his disciples at the table next to Jesus, at Jesus' side, and Simon Peter is over there at the end where he can see John, and Simon wants to know, who is it? John probably wants to know, but John won't ask. Again, we go back to, it's Peter is always the guy who's instigating things. He's the guy who's speaking up, but Peter can't ask from over there. So he's looking at John going, you know, John! And John's going. <laughs> and Peter's. And so he plays charades, you know. <laughs> you know, movie, <laughs> whatever. They go through that until John gets, oh, you want me 
Notice what it says. He turns, he leans back against Jesus. That's how we know he's at the right side of Jesus. They're leaning on their left. John leans back. Just a few inches. Jesus, who is it? Jesus answers, the one to whom I will give this morsel of bread. This morsel of bread is the sup, it's called. It is the first real food that's eaten in the Passover meal. It's the beginning of the real dinner. Everything up to this has been prelude. It's been service. It's been, uh, there have been some questions and answers and, and uh, worship. And now it's time to eat. And you take the matzah, the unleavened bread, and you dip it into what's called the uh, karoset. It's a sweet paste made of, of fruit and nuts that's ground together with spices. And, and uh, you dip it in that. And then the leader, that's Jesus, would give it as, a, as an honor to one of the guests. And he gives this morsel of honor to Judas. What I find interesting is that surprisingly, as Jesus identifies here the betrayer, that neither Peter or John react. Peter, who we know is carrying a sword right now. (laughs) And uh, you would think that they might have some words or have some to Jonas. (laughs) They do nothing. They're different. Folks think maybe they're just, they're, they're in shock. Other folks say maybe they're just being restrained. My personal thought is I don't think either one of them got it. See, Peter, who asked for this, is over there. He asked John to ask. John turns to Jesus, asks kind of quietly. Jesus whispers it to John. It's the guy I give this up to. Peter doesn't know what Jesus said or what Jesus is doing. He's just carrying on with the meal. As Jesus reaches over here to Judas, who is on Jesus' left, John is over here, his back to them. The only way for him to see it is to get up and turn around and look. And I don't, I don't think he had the chance. Or he didn't, for whatever reason. I think neither one of them know. And I think that from later in the text here. But Jesus has identified who it is. Surprisingly, Again, Judas takes it. And our text goes on and says, after he took that morsel, here it is, a surprise, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Jesus has identified the betrayer and now Jesus dispatches the, the, the betrayer. Not in the way the mafia dispatches people, but in the, in the sense of sending him out on a mission. He says, go do what you got to do. This is Thursday night, Tuesday night. Ever since Tuesday night, Judas has been looking for an opportunity because Tuesday night is when Judas went over and found the religious leaders and made a bargain with them to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Ever since then, he's been looking for an opportunity when he could go to the leaders and say, 
Here is where you can find Jesus at this time, and he will be away from the crowds in a place where you could arrest him because that's what those were their qualifications. They, they didn't want to arrest him when people are around because it might start a riot and then they've got a problem with Rome. A place where it's quiet and they have to know in advance so they can get there. Since Tuesday, Jesus has not given an opportunity because Jesus knows what's coming. It's not time. Jesus in full control has laid low and even where they were going to have this meal, they didn't know in advance. When it was time to get it ready, Jesus just sent a couple of the disciples, said when you get into town, look for a guy carrying a water jug. When you see that, follow him to his house. When you get to his house, go up to him and say, the master has need of your room uh, so we can celebrate the Passover. And he says, he'll take care of you. Those disciples now are there and none of the others know until Jesus takes them there. (laughs) Now, it says, is the time that Jesus says, it's about time I need to be arrested here fairly soon uh, so that we can be on schedule so I can be crucified on Passover day with the Passover lambs. Judas, what you do, go do quickly. He dispatches the betrayer. Isn't it interesting? Jesus is in total control all the way along. Again, the disciples don't know it at the time, but they will see it later. Judas had thought he had fooled everyone. He didn't fool Jesus. Judas realizes now he's been exposed. Jesus knows everything. Jesus wasn't fooled, but everybody else was. We see here that all of the other disciples, despite Jesus announcing, one of you is going to betray me. And Jesus sends Judas out. Everybody hears him tell Judas, what you got to do, do quickly. Everybody hears it, but nobody thinks a thing of it. They think he's just going to go buy, you know, go down to the quick trip and pick up a couple of bags of ice. Or go get another dessert for us, you know. Or... It is a holiday here. Go down to the food pantry and make a donation for the poor. That's what they're thinking. In other words, the implication, and by the way, it says no one of them knew. And I take that to mean both Peter and John. That's why I think they didn't know. Judas appeared to these disciples to be so trustworthy to be so genuine, to be so committed, to be so spiritual that not a one of them even had the slightest thought that that's the betrayer. So it was then, so it can be often today that there can be hypocrites, there can be false believers in the church that none of us will ever know until Jesus said, You let the weeds grow up with the wheat. (laughs) The day's coming at harvest time when he will separate the weeds from the wheat. That's the story. Just really to wrap up with a couple of takeaways, a couple of lessons for us this morning. The first is, and there could be dozens of lessons, but just two that stuck in my mind as I studied this week. The first was the hardness of man's sinful heart. I don't know about you, but when I read 
the betrayal of Judas, it sticks in me and I wonder how can anyone do what he did? First of all, I find it difficult to imagine just deliberately betraying someone you know to be innocent. He knew Jesus was not guilty of anything worthy of death, which is why after this he goes and throws the money back and says, I betrayed an innocent man. He had remorse for doing what he knew was wrong, but he never repents. There's a difference. But how can you betray an innocent man? Secondly, how do you betray a close friend? Someone you've been with for three years that you're sitting next to at a meal. How do you betray the Son of God? Judas probably didn't believe he was the Son of God, but what did he think? Judas had been there for three years. He had heard Jesus teaching as Jesus taught in public and as he taught in the remedial sessions in private with the disciples. He had witnessed most of Jesus' miracles. He had seen Jesus feed thousands of people with just a few little morsels of food, creating things from basically nothing. (laughs) Only the Creator could do that miracle. He had seen Jesus calm a raging storm out in the Sea of Galilee, think a hurricane, and with one word, He had seen Jesus walk on water. He had seen Jesus raise the dead, heal the sick. He even experienced when Jesus gave Judas and the other eleven disciples, He sent them out on mission and Jesus gave the twelve the ability, the power, the authority to cast out demons and to heal all manner of diseases and infirmities. Disabilities. Judas not only saw, he not only heard, he experienced the power of Christ working through him doing these things. How is it possible for him to think anything but this is not a man? This is God. He not only saw the things Jesus did, he saw his character. He saw how Jesus was was so loving and gracious toward the unlovely, toward the outcast. How Jesus was concerned about the the little people, the unnoticed people, the downtrodden. He saw not only Jesus' love and Jesus' grace, He saw Jesus' purity as He sees a man who never once even had the slightest hint of sin in His life. Judas spent three amazing years with Jesus. How could He betray Him? Problem is, you see, it's what Jesus said in chapter 6 of John, verse 64. Jesus says to some disciples, He says, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. Jesus knew that Judas did not believe and that he would betray. Judas spent three amazing years with Jesus, 
But just hanging around with Jesus does not save you. Just being around Jesus doesn't get you to heaven. Just like, as the old saying goes, just being in a garage doesn't make you a car. The problem is that Judas never truly believed in Jesus. He had heard the truth. He had seen the truth. He knew the truth, but he never trusted and owned Jesus Christ as his own Savior and Lord. He never put his faith in Jesus, and without faith in Jesus, rather than grow in love with Jesus, and rather than grow more committed to Jesus, with every passing day, Judas grew more frustrated with Jesus to the point where he was willing now to betray Jesus for a little bit of money. Problem is that Judas had followed Jesus not because he believed Jesus, not because he believed in Jesus, but because he was looking to see what he could get from Jesus. There's a lot of people in churches today who they're only there for the same thing. They're here for what they can get from Jesus, not because they believe in Him. Come because we hope that maybe if I go to church, maybe if I do some religious things that Jesus will fix my marriage. Maybe Jesus will, you know, get me a different job. Maybe Jesus will get my bills paid. That's not faith in Jesus. Does Jesus help us in our marriages? Does Jesus help us in our problems? Yes, He does. Does He he hear our prayers? Yes, He does. But we don't come to Jesus looking for what we can get from Him. We come to Jesus in what saving faith is. It's faith. It's believing in Him, trusting in Him, not trying to get from Him. What amazes me as I look at Judas in this night, the night of the betrayal, is I am amazed at Jesus' tender love and grace towards Judas. I find it staggering. Judas is allowed, if not deliberately placed by Jesus, to be right there next to him in the place of honor. Jesus takes the role of a slave and washes all the disciples' feet, including Judas' feet. Jesus, you see, loves his enemy, as he even called us to do. He loves his enemy, even washing his dirty feet. And I don't think that he pinched him or pulled the hairs off his leg or anything else that we might have been tempted to do. (laughs) He didn't do that. In Jesus' kindness, Mark records that Jesus sometime during the conversation, says this to disciples. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. In other words, what's going to happen to the Son of Man is exactly what's been prophesied. All of the suffering, all the the death, all of that is going to happen. He says, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Why did Jesus say that? He's not trying to rub salt in Judas's womb. This is an act of love. What Jesus is doing by these acts of kindness, what he's doing by this, what he's doing in the next moment when Jesus gives that morsel of honor to Judas, in every case what Jesus is doing is he is saying to Judas, 
I love you, Judas. Don't go down this road. The Son of Man will be betrayed. The Son of Man must be betrayed because He is going to be crucified. He is going to be a sacrifice for sin, but Judas doesn't have to be the one to do that. There, by the way, is that tension of God knows it all. (laughs) Jesus knows it's going to happen. It is going to happen. And yet Judas all the way along has a choice and he's responsible for it. The sovereignty of God, the will of man, they both come together. We'll never understand them, but they are both the reality. Judas at any moment here could have said, I am so sorry. I am so wrong. Jesus, I was that man that was going to betray you. I won't go there. Our text tells us that after receiving that morsel, Satan entered into him. Judas had so hardened his heart and turned against Jesus that now there was no turning back. And Satan had an open door to go in. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 speaks of God's kindness leading us to repentance. God wants to bring us to repentance and bring us to Him by His kindness. We often think God wants to do it through discipline and through problems and sometimes He does because we ignore the kindness and goodness of God which He wants us to go, wow, I can't believe you're so good to me. I'll follow you with all I am. That's what Jesus was trying to do here with Judas on this night. Judas, I love you, buddy. You don't have to do this. But Judas was having none of it. If you're here this morning, you've never, or watching online, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't harden your heart towards Him. There's a God who loves you so much, He sent His one and only Son. Don't wait any longer. God is gracious, God is patient. There is a time when his patience comes to an end. For Judas, it came that night. There's a time coming ultimately in history when there is no more time. Today is the day of salvation, the Word of God says. Trust in Jesus. Lastly and very quickly, there's a second marvel in this passage that I see. And that is God's marvelous grace for his own Skip down to verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Because he just said in the verse before that, he's, a couple of verses before that he's going away. We'll cover that next week. Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, The rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Dear Peter, so big with his promises, God, I will, Jesus, I will never desert you. I will never abandon you. I'll never, I will never betray you. I will never deny you. I am with you. I will go to prison with you. I will die with you. If that's what it takes, I am your guy. You can count on me. He doesn't just say it once, by the way. He says it later this night, too. And Jesus tells him again, you're not going to get through this night without three times denying me. You know the story. He does. Before a little girl, (laughs) Peter denies Jesus three times. Why am I here? 
Well, Jesus predicts here that Peter will betray Jesus. Luke adds a little detail that John doesn't have here. A little bit more to the conversation here in the upper room between Jesus and Peter about this. And here's what Jesus said. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says, Peter, you will fall. You will fold like a wet taco. I mean, no resistance here at all. And uh, you're going to deny me three times. But you will come back from this sin. You will come back because I'm praying for you. And when you do come back, I've got a job for you. Strengthen your brothers. And I read that and I go, wait a minute. Is it really bad to betray Jesus to people who are going to kill him? Is that a bad thing? You know, the first service had a hard time with this too. And I think that people thought I was asking for volunteers for the nursery. Okay? Is, is it a bad thing to betray Jesus to people who are going to kill him? Oh, thank you. I've got to work on my delivery here somehow. Is it a bad thing to deny Jesus three times? Yeah. You know, in many ways, they're the same sin to different degrees. Why does Judas, from that night, he says he, he goes out into the dark and literally from that moment he never sees another sunset. He dies and goes into the darkness of hell. He never sees another sunrise. Why does that happen to Judas? And Peter gets a comeback. Peter gets a reboot. Why? The difference is found right there in that verse up there. Notice what Jesus says. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Jesus said already, we read it, Judas did not have faith. He did not believe in Jesus. Peter here does believe in Jesus. He's weak, he's frail, but he has faith. You see what I'm learning here as I look at all this? Judas failed Jesus. Peter failed Jesus. Judas didn't believe. Peter did. Jesus says, Peter, I know you're going to fail, but I have prayed for you. Your faith won't fail. That your faith won't fail. Because I, I believe, by the way, I say that it won't because if Jesus prays for something, does it happen? Your faith won't fail. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. May I tell you this? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is praying for you. That's good. Isn't it? That's good news. Because how many of you, believers in Jesus Christ, how many of you fail? How many of you sin? Yeah. Do we deserve the same fate as Judas? Yeah. What's the difference? The grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ.
That's it. What does Jesus do for us when we fail? He prays for us that we return. The true Son of God always comes back. Always comes back. What do you do right now if you've been running from God? Come back. If you've been disobedient, come back. Jesus is always waiting for you. He's praying for you. And He restores us. This is good news. Let's pray. Father, thank You. What a powerful passage. So much here. And as usual, I've gone over time. But it's good stuff. And it's stuff we need to hear. Your grace is great. Our sin is big. We were helpless, but you loved us so much you sent a Savior. Sadly, there are many who reject the Savior. Many who even hang out with Jesus. Many who even come and darken the doors of churches, but they never actually trust in Him. They never actually own Him as their Savior and Lord. They play religious games. And they look for what they can get from You rather than simply believing in You. Father, may that not be the case of anybody here or anybody watching. Then, Father, reality is every one of us who are believers in You, we fail. But, Father, may we do what Peter did. May we come back. May we do as Jesus called us to do. Come back. May we cling to the wonderful promise here that You're praying for us. And You'll get us to heaven one day by Your grace. So may we come to You. Jesus, strong and kind.